My name is David Porter. I am the author of Five Minutes to Live. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to this podcast. Uh, just a few things to, to note. Um, in the description of the podcast, I've got the purchase link if you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live. I've also got my Facebook and Twitter links so you can find me. I'd love to hear from you. I'll interact with you. Um, the, the purpose of this podcast, we are reading through Five Minutes to Live chapter by chapter, releasing a new chapter each week, and I release them on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. Central Time. Now, if you're here and you haven't started with the prologue, episode number one, go back, start there, or you're going to be completely lost. Please set the alert notification, whatever that looks like on your podcast of choice, so that when the new episode is released, it alerts you. Now, one other thing, Five Minutes to Live has a lot of footnotes. There are a lot of scientific references and a lot of Bible verses. In each episode, I'll list all of those footnotes so you'll have them. You can go back and research, read about the people, read about the articles, read about the science, and read the Bible verses. Finally, I've got a new book that I've finished writing. It's called 60 Seconds of Silence. It's not out yet, but as soon as it is, I'll go back and list the link so you can purchase it in the description of each episode as well. Now, with that, thanks for being here. Let's get to it. All right, so we're about to read chapter 20, but I'm in the Christmas spirit, and I'm really excited, and I'm going to give you guys a special treat. So after we finish chapter 20, stick around. I've got a special treat for you. You don't want to miss it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just got to stick around. So we'll read chapter 20 and then special treat, special, special treat, sneak preview. Here we go. Chapter 20. Aaron's plan had been simple. And now that I was in the middle of it, I knew he was right when he said he didn't think I was going to like it. His plan meant I risked being captured by the mercenaries. I argued and pleaded, but in the end, he was right. This was the only way it would work. Only a few hours had passed since Aaron and I had escaped from Moho magnetic machines and the grasp of the mercenaries approaching the rear of the building. But now, here I was across the street, staring at the building once again, concealed from view by a large green dumpster in an alleyway. The activity in and around the building was minimal, which I guess was to be expected of a warehouse facility. It's not like they were in retail with people entering and leaving all day. There were only a handful of cars in the parking lot, which made it easier to keep an eye on things. The plan was to kidnap Omar Abdul, take him back to our secret location and find out what he knew. Because Omar and I had already talked, I was to be the bait while Aaron did the grabbing. Our hope was to get him at lunchtime or after work on his way home. If he got in a car, I was to flag him down, get him to stop, and Aaron would get in the car while Omar was distracted. If he walked someplace for lunch, I was to make contact and Aaron would approach from the rear. The biggest problem I had with both of these scenarios was that I had to give Aaron my gun. He couldn't coerce Omar to comply with demands without a weapon. Reluctantly, I handed over the firearm and now, here I was.
hoping an old, near-deaf man would leave for lunch so that I could play my part in his kidnapping. The waiting was the worst part. I thought a lot about Aaron and what he had told me about his father. Finally, at a little after 3 p.m., I saw Omar step from the front door of the building and make his way over to a little four-door vehicle. The car was so small and so nondescript, it was virtually anonymous all by itself. The only thing that made it unique in any way was how dirty the thing was. It didn't look like it had ever been washed. Omar got in the car, backed out of the parking spot, and made his way to the exit. As he pulled into the street, he made a left-hand turn toward me, and I stepped out of my hiding spot. I raised my hand in a waving manner. Omar smiled and slowed down and rolled to a stop. I walked over to the passenger side window and Omar leaned across to manually crank the handle that lowered it so that we could speak. It couldn't have been more perfect. As he was leaning over, Aaron opened the rear driver's side door and sat down. I leaned into the open window and shouted, We need to talk! and got in the car. Omar sat back up and saw Aaron, gun in hand, in his rearview mirror and nearly jumped out of his seat. He turned and looked at me with a look of horror on his face. Drive. We will show you where, Aaron said. Nothing happened. We didn't move. Drive. We will show you where, I shouted again. Omar obviously hadn't heard Aaron the first time. I turned to Aaron and said, I told you he's pretty deaf. You will need to be very loud. Omar drove the car as we shouted instructions to him. We made our way back to our hiding location and marched Omar inside to begin our interrogation. Omar tried to ask questions along the way. He tried to explain things along the way. Every time he tried to speak, Aaron forcefully told him to keep his mouth shut. There'd be plenty of time for talking in a few minutes. Finally, we made it back to our base of operations. We led Omar around the corner, through the chain link fence entrance and into the building. We marched him upstairs and found a chair for him to sit in. As he sat down, Aaron and I walked in front of him so that he could see our mouths. He needed to read our lips as we asked him questions. I looked him straight in the eye and started with the interrogation. Omar, you were telling me about seismic waves and MRI machines this morning. You said something about Russia, hydrogen molecules, and radio frequencies. I would like for you to continue from that spot. Tell me about Jessica's machine and Russia. Keep it simple. Tell the truth, and we will let you out of here soon. Omar nodded, and I noticed he was shaking almost uncontrollably. A part of me felt sorry for him, but if treating him this way led to getting Jessica back, it was worth it. He began, your friend Dr. Adams is with, but before he could finish the sentence, Aaron slapped him across the mouth, surprising the both of us. Aaron said, you answer only what we ask you, nothing else. Tell us about the machine and Russia. Omar wet himself. It was an awful sight to see a man urinate on himself out of fear. Again, I said, almost pleading, 
Omar, tell me about the machine and tell me about Russia. Keep it simple and on point. Yes, simple, on point, Omar said. It was like having clear instructions gave him some sort of stability. Jessica's machine, we call it the Genesis machine, works like an MRI machine does at a hospital. One side shoots beams, like our flashlight, like waves, through a material, and then the other side reads the resulting wavelengths. The difference in wavelengths shows that the beam went through the different materials, and we can map those substances. Now, the complicated part. Omar began pleading, Please don't hit me again. I'll make it as simple as possible. I nodded to Omar and said, Keep going. He continued nervously, The complicated part is that we are shooting strong magnetic frequencies that charge the hydrogen atoms. And then we use radio frequencies to read those resulting wavelengths. Like I said this morning, you don't really need to know how it works, just that we measure hydrogen atoms and their wavelengths. Here's the genius part. Your friend, Jessica, Dr. Adams, discovered a way to use this MRI-like machine to harness the Earth's magnetic fields and use its hydrogen-rich core to map the crust and mantle layers. Just like a ship pings through the water to try to locate a submarine, Jessica pinged through the Earth and then was able to actually map it. It's revolutionary. It's the biggest discovery in the last 400 years, at least since Galileo. I was not impressed. All of this death, the destruction, the kidnapping, all of it because Jessica discovered a way to map the Earth's guts? Omar looked at Aaron, fearful, and then nodded, not daring to speak again. Aaron said, Tell us about Russia. Simple and on point. Omar said, Yes, simple and on point. The two deepest holes that mankind has ever dug are over 12 kilometers deep and they're both located in Russia. These are small boreholes deep into the Earth's crust. Realize these boreholes are only a matter of inches across. Small, small diameter. As the scientific teams drilled, they collected samples of the materials they were passing through. We have a perfectly accurate record of the different strata along the Earth's crust down to a depth of 12 kilometers. We went to Russia to test the Genesis machine to see if the results we were getting actually matched what was below the Earth's surface. Was it working like we hypothesized it would? And if it was, could it give us data that could be verified by the collected results from the boreholes? And did it? Aaron asked. Omar nodded slowly as a smile crossed his face. He was proud of their accomplishments. And so much more. We pinged and over the next several hours got results back. Our results matched exactly. Then we realized something else. We were able to map not only 12 kilometers down, but thousands of kilometers down. Farther than man has ever or probably will ever be able to dig. 
We were able to tell where the different materials began and ended, the different layers in the crust, mantle, and even the Earth's core. We were able to tell between solid and liquid. We were even able to tell when there was a void in one of the layers. I empty space. Aaron followed up with, If you have a machine and verifiable results, what are you building in the warehouse at your lab? Omar responded, the hardware for bigger machines. The machine we took to Russia has an exceptionally small scanning diameter. Just like the borehole was small, only inches across, so was our MRI reading. It only mapped a very small sliver, barely inches across. That machine was practically handheld. We are building bigger machines, the hardware for them at least, so that we can map much larger portions much quicker. Dr. Adams controls the software to the programs. Aaron's eyes lit up like he was beginning to understand. There was a moment of recognition, like he was beginning to see the potential. I asked, so why is this the biggest discovery in the last 400 years? What makes this bigger than Galileo? Omar nodded. He was starting to relax a little. He was turning back into the teacher from earlier in the day. He said, do you remember what Galileo is known for? The only thing I can remember about Galileo is that he did something with telescopes, I said. Yes, that is somewhat true, Omar said. He worked with and modified telescopes and made many discoveries about our solar system. He found the moons of Jupiter and described in his writings the rugged lunar surface. What he is most famous for is proving or confirming heliocentrism. Heliocentrism puts the sun at the middle of the universe, not Earth. Until 1615, Europeans believed that God's creation, mankind, was at the center of the universe, here on Earth, that the sun, stars, planets, all orbited around us. Galileo proved otherwise. There was no doubt about it. He proved through science and the scientific method that man wasn't at the center of the universe and the church declared war on him. I guess Omar saw the confused look on my face and continued. 400 years ago, the mindset was different than today. In the church's mind, they felt Galileo was asking the question, how could there even be a God if man wasn't at the center of his universe? Galileo never intended to do that. The church saw it as an all-or-nothing proposition. So the church declared war on Galileo, and in doing so, the church effectively declared war on science as well. The pushback was immediate, and science has been fighting back with a vengeance ever since. Why do you think most scientists are atheists? Confused, I asked, how does the church declare war on someone? Galileo published a paper in which he promoted heliocentrism, the theory that the Earth and other planets revolve around the Sun. This was the time of the Inquisition, and the Inquisition declared that heliocentrism was officially heretical. Heliocentric books were banned, and Galileo was ordered to refrain from holding, teaching, or defending heliocentric ideas. In 1632, Galileo, 
Now an old man published another paper which implicitly defended heliocentrism, and it was immensely popular among the intellectuals. Responding to mounting controversy over theology, astronomy, and philosophy, the Roman Inquisition put Galileo on trial, and in 1633 they found him guilty of heresy, sentencing him to indefinite imprisonment. Galileo was kept under house arrest until his death in 1642. That's how the church declares war on someone. Aaron interrupted, Enough with the history lesson! Why is this the biggest discovery in four centuries? Omar, visibly shrinking in his seat, said, Oh, I haven't got to that part yet. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got distracted. This is the biggest discovery because of what we found next. Our next test was to ping at the place in the undersea mountains of the Indian Ocean. The place where we went is called Atlantis Bank. This is where Henry Dick has been drilling since the mid-1980s, and so we were able to tag along with his research and drilling team. We were blessed. Where we pinged, we got some curious readings. After we returned home, Dr. Adams spent months analyzing the test result data. Finally, the day came when Dr. Adams announced to the team that she believed she had discovered something amazing. She brought us all together, everyone she had been working with, which meant I was also invited. Jessica told us she believed she had found one place where the fountains of the deep originated, and she was convinced she could find many more. Aaron and I looked at each other and then back at Omar, confused. What are you talking about, fountains of the deep? Aaron hissed. Omar turned his face and squinted his eyes, waiting for the slap or punch that never materialized. After a moment, realizing he wasn't going to be hit again, he continued. In Genesis, the first book of the Torah, and in the Christian Bible, there is an account of a righteous man and his family. He is even mentioned in the Quran. In the Torah, Quran, and biblical accounts, his name is Noah, and he is remembered for surviving an earth-encompassing flood. In actuality, there are several other accounts of a global flood in just about every historic civilization, from the Chinese to the Native Americans. You've probably heard about the Epic of Gilgamesh, but there are others. Omar started veering off course, taking an unnecessary rabbit trail. The ancient Chinese lettering has its roots in the flood story. There's a wonderful book called The Discovery of Genesis by C.H. Kang and Ethel Nelson that you could read if you were interested. There's another book called After the Flood by Bill Cooper where he traces man's roots back to Noah. There are others if... What in the world are you talking about? I asked, interrupting his thought. Aaron finally put a stop to the rabbit trail that Omar had followed. Enough! He shouted. What about the fountains of the deep? What did she find? Again, visibly shaking in fear, Omar replied, There are lots of descriptions of a worldwide flood, but Jessica, as a Christian, always referenced the biblical account of the flood, and she always quoted from the King James translation. She told us all, each at different points, about the validity of that translation, of how the Puritan and the Anglican bishops had come together under the mandate of King James 
to produce a translation of the Bible that was an accurate translation, one without bias. Because of the checks and balances that King James put in place, one of the purest, most accurate translations had been created. Whenever she would talk about it, it was always so boring to me and most of my team, but she was so passionate that we just let her talk. Aaron made his way to Omar and raised his hand like he was about to slap him again. No, 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 wait, wait. The King James Version of the biblical account uses a phrase to explain how the flood occurred. Omar stammered. It states, in, in, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. See, Dr. Adams believed that the global flood had actually occurred in our mapping of the Earth's crust and mantle in Russia. She found layers of water, different bands at different depths in liquid states, miles thick between the Earth's surface. Then in the Indian Ocean, she found one of the places where the great deep was broken up. She had found a place where water had escaped from the Earth's mantle and either began or added to a global flood. She had found a way to verify what the Bible said was true. Science was confirming the Bible. Possibly the war between the two has finally been won. I stood there with my mouth wide open. Everything that Jessica had said preparing for her speech, everything Nuria had told me while I was at the lab, and everything Omar had told us all lined up perfectly. It was all clear, moving from one point to the next point to the next point. Finally able to regain some of my composure, I said, Omar, you have said several times that at your workshop you are making the hardware for the machines to do this mapping. What about the software? Do you have anything to do with that? Omar shook his head. No, Dr. Adams and her assistant, they are the ones who know about the software. The assistant, her name is Nuria Melamed. She's a software program engineer, and the two of them have built the program so that you need a set of keys to use the machines. My machines are useless without Dr. Adams' software, and the software is useless without the keys. It was the way that Dr. Adams kept anyone from stealing her research. The software can only be accessed from her laptop, and it can only be accessed with the keys. I don't even know what the keys are. I've just heard the ladies mention them. I turned to Aaron and said, well, now we know why she's been kidnapped, to get her keys. I asked Nuri about the keys when I was there, but she played it off. Gave me a wild goose chase to follow and didn't tell me. I guess she didn't know me well enough or didn't feel comfortable telling me about the keys they designed. It makes sense, but it sure would have made things easier knowing Jessica was kidnapped for those keys. Aaron nodded and Omar said, But Matt, she hasn't. But that was all he got out before Aaron slapped him again, the echo ringing through the cavernous space. Aaron seethed. Don't say anything unless you are told to. I thought you understood that. Now, tell us about the device to harness the Earth's geothermal energy. Omar, still woozy from the thunderous slap, said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, and started crying, fearful of more pain. 
It was quiet for a moment as Aaron and I pondered if Omar was holding out on us. Was this his way to keep the real discovery, the discovery of a way to harness the Earth's geothermal energy to himself? In that quiet moment, that's when we heard the noises. I froze. Motionless, I looked at Aaron, who was already holding his index finger up in front of his mouth, giving the universal shh sign, and he already had his gun pulled from his waistband. Omar was smart enough to keep his mouth shut. Aaron ran quietly in the direction of the sound. He looked out of the window and came charging back to me, shouting, Time to go! The mercenaries are here and they're about to breach the building! Then pointing at Omar, he said, He must be wearing a tracker! We've got to get to the airport! Aaron was running and grabbing my arm, screaming, We've got to keep you safe, Matt! You're the most important piece to this puzzle now! Move! Come on! Let's go! Pulling me as he went. End of chapter 20. And now for the surprise that I promised you. So I've been teasing my new book, 60 Seconds of Silence. I'm going to read you the first chapter. Here is your sneak preview. 60 Seconds of Silence, Chapter 1. Darkness. Total and complete. Nothingness in its purest form. Matt couldn't tell if his eyes were opened or shut. He tried moving his hand up to his eyes to check if he could see it, but that's about the time he realized his arm was pinned under something. Was he laying on it? Was his wife? His body felt completely unfamiliar. His bed felt completely unfamiliar. And so did his apartment. Their apartment in the middle of the city had never been this dark or this silence since he and his wife had moved in. Is, is the power out? He whispered to his wife. Matt tried to roll over to face the side of the bed she normally slept on, and that's when the slicing pain hit him. Everything hurt, but his head hurt. This wasn't just a headache kind of pain. This was gold medal pain. Numero uno pain. Worst hangover in the world kind of pain. Matt laid his head back down on his pillow, but realized it wasn't his pillow. It was hard. Jagged. He noticed his ears squelched a high-pitched noise. What's going on? He finally said out loud but the sound was foreign to him, different, just like everything else about this moment. Matt again tried to move his arm and realized that not only could he not move it, he couldn't really feel it either. He slowly used his left arm, his free arm, to try and determine what was going on. It turns out his arm was pinned under a very large piece of concrete or something right above his elbow. That's when things came back to him. This wasn't concrete. This was the cave itself trapping his arm. Matt had a vision of Aaron Ralston, the mountain climber that had his arm pinned under a boulder while climbing in Utah. The way he escaped, he cut off his own arm 
and he did it with a pocket knife. Fear started to dig its claws into Matt's emotions. How do I keep getting myself into these situations? Hello? Can anyone hear me? He shouted. The sound made his head throb even more. Nothing. Silence. Total and complete. Nothingness in its purest form. It was like his surroundings swallowed the sounds he was making. Well, that's not good, Matt whispered to himself. I'm not cutting off my arm. His words trailed off. Again, the fear tried to set in. Matt's brain was running a thousand miles an hour. He remembered seeing the news reports from a few years ago when a youth soccer team had been exploring a cave in Thailand. What was supposed to be an hour inside a cave dramatically changed when a sudden rainstorm had pinned them in the belly of the cave. Completely cut off from the outside world, trapped, without food or way of escape, they stayed there for over two weeks before the Thai Navy SEALs rescued them. Can I survive that long? If it rains right now, I'm pinned. I'm, I'll drown. The fear was gaining a stranglehold on him. Matt made a decision. Matt resolved within himself that no matter what the circumstances looked like, how dire the situation turned, that God was for him and not against him. Matt resolved that he would live and not die. And so he began the process of continuing his life. Matt was lying on his back, completely surrounded by fallen rocks. It was like he was in a small cocoon, completely protected from the falling mess. If he had been six inches taller or had fallen six inches to the left or right, it might have been a completely different story. He didn't have room to sit up. In fact, if he were to sneeze, he would hit his head on the slab of rock directly in front of his face. It couldn't be any more than eight inches away from the tip of his nose. If I move any of these rocks, the whole place may cave in on me. I could be completely crushed. On the other hand, just on the other side of this rock might be daylight. No, I don't think that's right. Anyone could have heard me scream. And I would be able to hear them. I can't hear anyone. Do they know I'm missing? Is anyone even looking for me? Don't panic. Breathe. Lord, you're going to have to get me out of here. How long was I unconscious? Two minutes? Two hours? Two days? Focus, Matt. Focus. Don't get overwhelmed. Attack one problem at a time. Matt again began fighting that crippling panic that was trying to set in. The ceiling slab gave a loud crack as dust and debris fell into Matt's open mouth. End of chapter one. If you're still here, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that reading. If you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live, the link is in the description below, and you can find my Facebook and Twitter links there as well. Drop me a line. Please subscribe and hit the bell so you know when the next chapter is released. And if you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends and family. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.